episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months of their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a 7-day money-back guarantee. So go check them out at linode.com slash ifreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 217 of the iFreak Show. Today on our panel, we have Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. Guy Rambo. Hello from Brazil. Erica Sadoon. Hello from the Rocky Mountains. I'm James Zuber from Minneapolis. We have a guest today. We've got Tim Eckel. Tim, can you introduce yourself? Yeah. Hello from Seattle. My name's Tim, and I'm an engineer at the Omni Group. I work on OmniFocus for both iOS and the Mac, and I also lend a hand organizing our local Xcoders meetups. I've been involved in the iOS community out here for about five years and moved out from Chicago in 2012. Yeah, very cool. Andrew and I stopped by the Xcoders meeting back in, what was that, May? Yeah, May. Oh, fantastic. I probably saw you then. We could have. Yeah, so we brought you on the show to talk about High Sierra and what's coming up next with that. So, do you want to give us Absolutely. an intro? Sure. So Hi Sierra is, what, give or take a week old at this point, and we've been working hard at Omni to, to get some app updates out. Uh, what interested me about Hi Sierra this round is how relatively few major tentpole features the OS had that you know required immediate adoption from folks with featureful Mac apps. Um, from our perspective, it was a relatively pain-free transition, which has certainly not been the case in years previous. Yeah, so I'm so, I, I, I'm a Mac developer too, and I've I've gotten quite a few questions from users about, hey, is your app ready for Hi Sierra? And I'm thinking, well, oh Sierra, Siri thinks I'm talking to her. Uh, I'm thinking, well, there's not anything really that different, <laughs> and I don't know. It just seems like it's been quite a, a low key release in the history of um, you know com- compared to other OS X releases. So I'm I'm you know, have you had to do anything at all? To, to get your apps ready? Uh, there were a couple things, you know, mostly by way of little bug fixes or, you know, runtime behavior changes. One of the, the interesting new features that did affect us was, um, you may recall in, I forget if it was Sierra or the, the release previous, when um, they introduced tab support to a lot more applications. Um, and under the hood, the way that works is what we think of um, in code as a window, an NS window, really shows up on screen as a tab. Um, High Sierra brought a freebie view menu item that is show all tabs, and it does a neat little expose-like or a Safari tab-like thing in your app's window to show you all the tabs that you have open and let you swap between them quickly. Um, so we did have to kind of look at that view menu item and shuffle it around so it made sense in our menu system, but the, the functionality that it brought was, was for free, um, and that was actually really nice knowing that we had done the work to support that kind of thing last year and we can continue to reap benefits from it this year. 
What other kind of cocoa impact did Sierra have? What did we see in APIs and so forth? Not just things that necessarily affected you directly, but things you saw as a change in, you know, just general philosophy or anything different from Apple's point of view? Uh, that's actually a really good question. And I went before the show, I went looking at the, uh, the app kit APIs to see what diffs are available. And it turns out that they, they're not publishing diffs for that framework. Like they do for UI kit. Um, but by and large, it seems like a very incremental evolution. Um, one of the other features that, that sticks out to me is the, uh, spring loaded buttons are available now, um, for drag and drop sessions. So, it feels like philosophically they're shifting. Um, they continue to shift to adopt more of the you know, force touch kind of technologies to let you during a drag and drop session, use different levels of force on trackpads that support it to interact with more kinds of controls. Um, so really just more uh, minor adoptions of features they've introduced in the past. It's refinements to the user experience. Um, I think that touch bar got a little bit, of polish this year, um, Siri got a little bit of polish, those sorts of things. Last year was the year of the touch bar. And mm -hmm. a lot of people have very mixed feelings about it, both from a user point of view and from a developer point of view. How have you adopted it into your software and how has the response been? Um, so that's a really interesting question because it, you, you say that the last year was the, really the year of the touch bar and that, um, at least from my perspective down in engineering, that has been, um, kind of indicative. Like when the touch bar came out in the first place, uh, we moved to adopt it in a few apps and got a lot of requests for it right off the bat. But then as people kind of, um, settled into using the touch bar and settled into Sierra and the new hardware, um, that we've seen that kind of thing sort of taper off almost as people either as they get used to it or, um, I know there was a lot of pushback on the touch bar originally. So as people decide that, you know, Hey, maybe I'm not going to use this as much as I thought that I would, or I'm really only in it for the touch ID, things like that. Um, so we've had to do relatively minimal upkeep after the fact, right? You get your primary core set of app actions into the touch bar. Um, and if you've, chosen those actions well and kind of make it an addition to your app instead of a, a primary interface. I think it works well for most folks. Has it been a successful feature for Apple and has it been a successful feature for your apps? Um, for Apple, it's kind of tough to say it almost, it feels mixed from where I'm sitting. Um, as I try to, I try to think of this, in, I try to think of my Mac in two different ways, almost. There's the, the kind of use that I have when I'm developing, where I try to exercise all these different features and see what it might be like for our customers. And then there's um, the way that I use my Mac when I'm at home, just, you know, surfing the web or relaxing. Um, and in the latter mode, I really don't touch the touch bar a lot myself. And I think um, from Apple's point of view, it feels kind of like they got a mixed bag of reception. Some people loved it and some people just don't see the utility. Um, from our end, the people that do love it and do use it, um, I think they like what we've done in our apps so far. And we have 
um, one or two apps that are still lingering on that support um, that we know about and know that um, that's something that folks are asking for. Um, but the support that we shipped has been well received among people who do use the touch bar. So again, there's kind of that conditionality to it. Can you give me some examples of how your your apps specifically use the bar? Sure. So I think um, I think OmniPlan was one of the first to adopt the Touch Bar. Um, and if I I'm not an engineer on OmniPlan, but if I recall that uh, implementation correctly, what we let you do there is establish um, beginning and ending constraints on tasks. Um, so you have a thing that you need to do and you're planning about it and it fits into your project schedule in a certain way. Um, and you can use the touch bar to kind of drag its start and end markers on a timeline. I've been, so I've had a touch bar MacBook pro now just for, I don't know, two or three months is all I didn't, I, it's mine is one of the second generation ones that they announced this year. And, uh, there are times when I use the touch bar and I think, Oh, this is really cool, but it's just not been, it's not become a pervasive part of my workflow. Maybe that's yeah, because I'm a game changer, right? Maybe, maybe if I were, I don't type on, on the laptop keyboard all the time. I often have an external keyboard hooked up or I'm on my desktop because I, I use an iMac at home. Maybe it's just that I don't use it enough that I can get used to it. And I would, if I used it all the time, but uh, I'm not, I'm not convinced that's the case either. Yeah, what? I definitely agree. I have an external monitor set up in my, in my main development station here. Um, and so my Mac usually operates in, in clamshell mode. So I don't even have access to the touch bar for a majority of my workday. I've been using the touch bar for like two days. <laughs> so, uh, I think I'm, I'm not very well equipped to, to talk about it, but from my experience, uh, even like playing with the touch bar simulator in Xcode, I think it works well for like sliders and timelines uh, and maybe very simple actions, but uh, some apps try to do some weird stuff with the touch bar and doesn't really work. Like the, I think one example of where it doesn't work is the, the tabs in Safari. Like I, I never use the touch bar to switch tabs and you can't really understand the content of the tabs on the little thumbnails so it's not very useful but what, what i wanted to ask tim is uh, what do you think of the apis for the touch bar in AppKit? because uh, i i think they are like better than other AppKit apis they look more modern like they they don't look like AppKit apis uh, do you like them yeah, I actually, um, I've been a fan of a lot of the changes that AppKit has been introducing, not just the touch bar, but um, a bunch of the changes over the last couple of years. Um, and I think you're right. I think they don't look like what we might consider traditional AppKit APIs. They almost feel um, as though they're drifting closer to the iOS, the UIKit style. Um, and I think that's a, a really good trend. I think it brings unity in how we think about these things when we're developing. Um but the touch bar specifically, uh, I know that they're leaning heavily on the responder chain, which is something that we're, we're well familiar with on both the Mac and iOS platforms. And I think it's kind of a, a natural fit um, because it's it feels to me much like you might then say keyboard commands for an iOS app when you're dealing with a hardware keyboard. It's another external hardware peripheral. And you want to give a lot of different 
parts of your app, the ability to insert actions into that touch bar or, you know, those into the set of keyboard commands. Um, and so that's a really nice parallel to me. It feels very natural when, when working with it. Okay, let's step back a little bit and talk about the responder chain. You mentioned it's, it's well-known, and I think it's well-known for people that have done a lot of work with Mac over the years. But for iOS, you can do a lot of work without even coming near the responder chain or you should know yeah, how it works. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and how it's sure it? Sure. Yeah, so uh, the responder chain is kind of this, this chain of objects, this um, almost line of objects where you have... The, the one thing on your screen or in your app at any given point that we consider the first responder. Um, and this is the object that has the first crack at handling actions. Um, a really good way to think about this is where your focus is. Um, so, for example, if you've got your cursor in a text field, uh, it's likely that that text field is the first responder. It's the thing that's going to get the first shot at handling the keys that you press, that sort of thing. Um, for those of us on the Mac with full keyboard access turned on as you're tabbing around, if you want that little blue focus ring, move around across um, different buttons and radio controls, those can all be first responder. They're the ones that respond to, you know, clicks or presses on the spacebar or something like that. Um, so this concept exists across both Mac and iOS. And um, what makes it a chain is that every responder has a the notion of a next responder. Um, and in a lot of case, it's uh, in a lot of cases, it's the view that contains the, you know, the first responder or the next object kind of up the hierarchy. Um, your view controllers fit into the responder chain um, at certain points as well. And then usually the last thing in your responder chain is your, uh, your shared application or your application delegate. So um, you always have that sort of global last ditch um, entry in the responder chain if you need to add any, any app universal items in there. Um, and so when we're talking about the touch bar and vending these touch bar actions using the responder chain, um, it's helpful because it means that wherever your users or your customers focus is in the app gets first shot at putting those actions in there. Um, so you might have an action that's specific to one particular field in an inspector or specific to your um, text selection or row selection or what have you in a table view based app. Um, and then you can kind of follow that chain up uh, through different containing views and through view controllers and your application-wide objects um, to slowly add more and more general actions um, all the way up. So in this case, is the touch bar at the beginning of the responder chain or towards the end? It's, it's pervasive, really. Uh, every object along the chain gets the chance to take an existing... Um, I forget the, the API name for it, but it gets the chance to take the existing set of touch bar actions and modify it in some way. So hypothetically, when I'm in a text field, I might have, you know, bold italic underline as my text field touch bar actions that that I could take. Um, and then as it winds up through the chain, my application might also decide to, you know, add a, a share button or something like that, um, a more application wide action that's not specific to text but can appear in the touch bar right next to those more specific actions that were added earlier on in the chain. When you're deciding what to put in the touch bar, how are you affected by the notion that you're dealing with people with older laptops who don't have a touch bar, people who are working at a desktop system, you know, maybe off of, you know, an iMac or 
just thinking about crossing over to, you know, iOS, how does this affect your UI choices in creating this language of how users can interact with your application? That's a, that's a great question. It's something that's um, frequently at the forefront of our design sessions. Um, what we try to do is think of the touch bar as though it's an auxiliary input mechanism, which really it is, right, for the, exactly the reasons you mentioned. Not everyone has a machine with a touch bar. Those that have a touch bar aren't always using it or aren't always at that machine or using a desktop, something like that. Um, and so what we try to do is stick with uh, user interface elements that we can actually place on screen um, as kind of a common denominator for everybody, right? Action should always be available via a hotkey or a menu item or a button on screen or something like that, something you can hit with the traditional keyboard and mouse combo. Um, and then if it's an action that we think is going to be taken frequently, something that we might otherwise assign a keyboard shortcut to, a default keyboard shortcut, um, then we might consider also putting it in the touch bar because that's kind of um, where you want those those frequent, those hop actions to go. Do you guys have specific design languages for the desktop experience versus the iOS experience? Or do you just consider them to be orthogonal software presentations? Um, we try to hew fairly closely to Apple's human interface guidelines on both platforms. Um, and so where those things, where the, the human interface guidelines specify something in common, we'll try to keep it in common. When they say that, you know, the interaction mode is different between desktop and iOS, we'll allow that to split. Um, but we do have our own design language. Um, and here I, I can speak primarily to OmniFocus as the, the app that I work on the most. Um, we do have a design language there that is specific to our app, but spans both platforms. And what we really try to do is give a common sense of place. Um, this, this happens through a combination of some visual cues on screen, use of color throughout the app. Um, you know, we use the tint color on iOS and some subtle selection highlights on the Mac to kind of create a sense of continuity where a feature for us appears both on the Mac and iOS. So, for example, OmniFocus has this feature named Forecast where you can see tasks that are coming up. Um, you know, they're due today or tomorrow. you got to get them done. Um, and the current versions of OmniFocus, that feature, that section of the app is highlighted red in both Mac and iOS releases. So we kind of, where we can, where we're, you know, inventing our own language and not um, necessarily following platform general guidelines, uh, we'll try to keep it in common across the two platforms so that folks who have our apps on both can, you know, feel at home. You briefly mentioned long press, and I wanted to come back to that because long press on both platforms has really taken up a more prominent role in the user experience. So could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. We've noticed that as both iOS and Mac get additional pressure sensitivity in terms of force touch and 3D touch, um, long press kind of occupies this interesting place in the, you know, the realm of touch gestures where 
it's more universally available. It's available on devices that don't have that pressure sensitivity. Like if you have an older trackpad or something like that. Um, but it also, um, has some existing meaning of its own, right? Like long press was available long before force touch and 3d touch ever came into being. So there are some places like, um, on the Mac with the new spring loaded button APIs where, um, their Apple's own fallback is, Hey, you know, if you have force touch, force touch to spring load a button, but if you don't just hover there for a second and it's kind of a, a long press like gesture. Um, but then long press also has existing behavior, like on iOS rearranging icons in your springboard. Um, and so it's been an interesting trade-off to decide for any given gesture whether you know long press is suitable for use, whether it's not already overloaded by a force touch gesture or a 3D touch gesture, um, whether it'll be confusing or frustrating to launch that particular gesture for our users. Uh, so it's kind of, it's been put into this interesting place by the introduction of these more pressure-sensitive hardwares. And how do you decide what gets the long touch, what gets, you know, the force touch? Because the the, the different touches have the, the language of touches, I guess, has really expanded. Mm-hmm. Uh, so force touch, we you know, much like the touch bar, force touch is not yet universally available. Um, and I think it's a little more pervasive. It's had a little more time to mature and to get out there on more um, units that Apple has shipped, but it's not a guarantee, right? And so when we're talking, when we're deciding about adopting force touch or 3d touch, um, again, we think about it as an auxiliary mechanism, a secondary way to get to a feature that you could also get to in a, you know, somewhere else with a more button or a contextual menu or something like that. Um, and then long touch, especially with the introduction of iOS drag and drop, um, has kind of gotten more specific in the cases we can adopt it. And often it's a, you know, uh, a motion or a rearranging. So on springboard, you long touch to start rearranging iOS app icons. You might long touch or long press, click and hold on a Mac to lift a text selection or lift a row out of a table view and start dragging it around, uh, things like that. This is sort of going to come out of left field, but how do you extend this expressiveness to the visually disabled and to, you know, any kind of augmented, um, assistive visualization of the app? Right. That is a, that's a really good point. We, we try hard to, um, make sure that, that our apps do support that kind of accessibility. Um, so like I said, it all, it all boils down to thinking about what things are, um, so to speak, universally available and what things are auxiliary input mechanisms. And so when we're designing these actions, a lot of times we'll say, okay, well, we want to be able to trigger such and such an action. And the default way to do it will be a tap or a click or a click and hold or something like that. But because we've started thinking about it from the perspective of the action and not necessarily what should this touch do, but the other way around, how do we accomplish action X? That gives us the flexibility to say, okay, we've implemented this action and then we hooked a touch up to it. We can also hook up to it um, an accessibility label or some additional kinds of hints 
um, for our screen readers to say, you know, you have focus on this element, it support, you know, you can tap to do this or double tap to, you know, invoke some other action. One of the most prominent examples that comes to mind is not on Mac, but on iOS, the uh, accessibility, I think they call it the magic gesture. We hooked up to undo, which is something that would be, you know, fairly universal in iOS apps. It's, you know, shake to undo has been around for however many years now. Um, but accessibility wise, because we started thinking about it from the perspective of, all right, we need to be able to undo. And then what gestures can we hook up to it? We thought, okay, shake is traditional, but also this accessibility magic gesture, we can hook into that same code path and make sure that it's available for everyone that's using our app. How has the new files system affected your apps? Uh, files on iOS? Yeah, on iOS. Um, files on iOS was interesting because we... So OmniFocus in particular had some some fun times with the file system. Um, a lot of our apps are document-based already, right? OmniOutliner, OmniGraphle, OmniPlan, all document-based apps. Um, and so they were kind of already architected to be able to handle individual files, to move them around, to accept them from external sources, like being shared in from an email or a message. Um, and from that perspective, files is another external source to open a document from. Uh, OmniFocus is what Apple calls a shoebox app. Um, we have one consolidated database that is not traditionally exposed as a file, um, but that we kept in the documents folder in OmniFocus's container. And so with the introduction of files, all of a sudden on iOS, we had to start thinking about, well, do we want to expose this database file that backs up our shoebox application through files? Does it help customers? Does it make it, you know, possible to corrupt the structure of the database um, accidentally by accessing it in a way that we weren't expecting? Um, but then on the other hand, does it help customers to be able to take that database and say maybe uh, export it to another app or copy it around outside of the shoebox that it used to be in? Um, so it was a it was a careful trade-off that we had to make, and I think we landed on a pretty good solution with iOS 11. So what other features did you look at when you know, updating your Mac app. So if someone has their Mac app and they're looking at the changes that are coming out, like how do you how do you make decisions on which which features are going to be most important that we should attack first? For you, the listeners of the iFreak show, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save ten percent on any new subscription at lootcrate.com. Just enter the promo code Bridge Ten for ten percent savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than twenty dollars. And it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. So I think what, you know, a lot of this planning started for us with uh, WWDC, right? We'll look at the, what Apple is announcing as the 10 pull features in the keynote um, to kind of get a sense of what people are going to be asking for, when, you know, what they'll be talking up, what it'll be good for us to support right out of the gate. Um, 
And then we'll also look at things like the developer state of the union and then specific WWDC sessions that deal with the Mac, you know, what's new in Cocoa, what's new in AppKit, those kinds of sessions. Um, and then from there, you know, we'll be watching those sessions. Um, usually, a lot of the time we'll watch them as a company or as an engineering department. Um, several of us will all be sitting in on the same one and say, okay, you know, let's just brainstorm. How does this particular feature affect OmniFocus? Something like that. Um, and so from there, what we get to do is say, okay, we think these technologies are changing. We think that Apple is prioritizing these things. Um, let's pare down a list of what we want to be supporting. Um, and with the Mac this year, it was you know somewhat of a short list. Apple definitely had their tent poles, um, but relatively few of them affected us. You know, there were bits of polish here and there, like I've said earlier. But really, one of the the biggest heavy hitters um, was APFS. Right, there was a lot of discussion around whether APFS was going to have an outsized impact on any of our apps. So how do you make a how do you make the determ- determination if APFS is going to affect your app? Uh, so Apple's guidance has been that um, folks using the NS File Manager APIs are um, more or less safe, right? You you still need to look a little bit at how you're naming files. If um, you're expecting files to be copied in a particular way, you're doing any kind of direct file system access using lower level APIs, um, that might be a risk. But um, you know, we saw a lot of discussion about APFS. Um, and thankfully wound up not having to make a ton of changes because we had been in years past making sure to, to keep on the supported path as far as, you know, NS file manager and that sort of thing goes. I've been working on some file manipulation stuff for on iOS the last little while. Uh, and, you know, APFS just sort of doesn't change anything as long as you're using those normal Cocoa APIs and not trying to do anything really low level or strange. The one app of ours that... Um, was affected the most was a, a venerable old app that we're, we're keeping going as a free download, um, Omni Disk Sweeper. Uh, anyone an Omni Disk Sweeper user? Yeah, I I have not used it lately, but I have used it in the past, and I know it's still around. Yeah, so that needed um, because what some of the things that it tries to do are you know scan the file system for used disk space and you know point you in the direction of your largest files. That needed to get updated to be a little savvier as far as APFS goes, um, because with cloning and snapshots and some of those features, you know, uh, files can appear multiple times without actually taking up, quote unquote, taking up additional space. Um, and there were some new, uh, metadata keys that needed to be supported in OmniDisk Sweeper. Um, so ironically enough, that was one of the ones that needed the most attention as far as APFS goes. Do you think uh, thinking about the stuff that changed in in High Sierra and you know what you've had to do as a developer to support it, um, and I'm thinking too about you know what I've had to do as a Mac developer. Do you think this is really a reaction to the what I think has been pretty vocal um, request for a, a sort of a slowdown and and stability and quality release of OS X instead of trying to pack in new features? Do you think Apple has listened to, to people and done that? Um. It's it's always tough for me to guess at Apple's motivations for one reason or another. Um, I certainly think that uh, they are listening to the the community at large, and I think that you know I've seen a lot of the same feedback that that you have, where folks are saying you know you've been kind of running along this yearly release treadmill for a while now, and uh, it's it's hurting us, right? It's taking a while, and we're jumping to implement all these new features and seeing 
more and more instability um, as time goes on. And so I, I think that maybe in part it's a reaction, maybe in part it's kind of a, uh, let's take a year and, and deal with it. But it could also be that um, Apple is taking this year to lay the foundation for some things that are going to appear in future OS 10 releases or Mac OS releases, excuse me. Um, it could be that, you know, they've rolled out APFS now and are planning to build additional OS level features on top of that, or um, have even introduced additional features in frameworks that we don't know about yet because they haven't surfaced to the level of, of developer API or app adoption yet. So I'm sure that this is one of those things, you know, two or three years down the road, I might look back and say, oh yeah, High Sierra was probably where they, you know, they slipped in initial support for some fancy new feature X. But um, at the moment, you know, I, I have a hard time distinguishing. That makes sense. I've, I'm getting to feel that, you know, we go to, Dub dub now, and we don't see these mind blowing things happening all the time. There's there's no Swift, but it's a lot of smaller things that I think, as you say, you know, over three or four years, they could add up to be big things, but big things, but you know, year upon year, it's not that big of a deal. But you know, things could change. I think that's probably a good way to look at what's happening right now. Yeah, and Swift Swift is a fantastic example of that because, like, in retrospect, looking at a lot of the changes in Objective C that led up to Swift, you could, like, once you knew what had happened, you could almost see the winds blowing that way, right? Like, Objective-C got lightweight generic support. Um, it got s some stronger nullability annotations, so you could tell whether an object or a method was going to return you possibly nil or it was guaranteeing that it wouldn't, things like that. And then Swift showed up and took all of those concepts and kind of, you know, cranked the dial up to 11, Um and in retrospect, it's like, ah, yeah, I can see how, you know, folks were, you know, maybe as, as part of a larger trend trying to get towards those um, stricter, more statically typed languages. And all these Objective-C changes were helping bridging into Swift, maybe deliberately, maybe not. Maybe it was just a general philosophical shift. But in retrospect, those incremental changes, those years when it just seemed like a little bit was happening to the language, there was a lot behind the scenes and we saw the curtain pulled back all at once. So has Omni gone whole swift or have you just started adopting it incrementally? What's, what's going on with swift? Uh, Omni has not gone whole swift. I think we've got uh, just a bit uh, too much code laying around to, you know, pick up and convert in you know, uh, a week or a month. Um, Especially if you take a look at our uh, open source repository on GitHub, you can see the, the amount of Objective-C that the company has built up and continues to use in shipping apps um, day in and day out. But a lot of our new development is transitioning to Swift as, you know, as the bridging situation allows. Um, so, And I think a lot of times that takes the form of a new feature being added into an app where brand new code is called for. Um, that's usually a pretty easy decision for me personally, anyway, to pick up and write that in Swift. Um, and then we'll find as more and more features are calling into older API, maybe we'll find time to, you know, rewrite one bit of the core here or there in Swift. And so there's not, you know, there's not a, a massive everything must be Swift conversion effort underway. Um, but we are definitely trending in that direction. What about stability, language stability in particular? 
are you comfortable bringing in the newer language? I think so. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, everyone here has been, uh, fantastic and enthusiastic about picking up the new language and, you know, learning the, the intricacies of bridging and that sort of thing, because I think we all see the benefits of it. Um, there has been a little grumbling on some of the, uh, the bigger changes, um, the great renaming that occurred a year or two the ago. The great now was, renamification. Yeah. Um, that was, a. Uh, that was a big hurdle to get over. And we had written much less swift at the time than we have now, but it was still enough that that was painful. Um, but we're, we're gratified to see that it looks like the Swift 3 to Swift 4 conversion is um, significantly less of a hurdle, right? There's some Objective-C inference information that we need to provide, but by and large, it should be um, an easier hump to get over. And I really hope that that trend continues, right? That kind of at the language level, they're settling down with um, big breaking changes like that. Very cool. So any, we're running a little bit low on time. Any last questions before, before we get to the picks? I want to know if you had an opportunity to sit down with Apple and say, Apple, I need you to fix the following things in Cocoa Tables and outline views, what would it be? Oh man, uh, that's a that's a loaded question because um, the OmniFocus is you know pretty much just a bunch of table and outline views all, all glued together. I think so. The thing is that I don't have like one huge feature request or one big bug that is just absolutely a showstopper and um, drives me nuts when I have to work around it. That kind of thing. I think that I would probably walk in with just a list of nitpicks and say, all right, well, we're having some trouble with, you know, text rendering here and visual effects view there and auto layout performance was a little slow in, in this one, you know, really edge corner case. And these are all things that Apple has been focusing on and has been slowly but steadily improving. But there's always, you know, it, it feels to me like there's always just one more bug right around the corner that, um, I would love to, to see fix that would, you know, clean up a workaround in our own code or allow us to implement a feature more easily, something like that. I've got to say outline views and table views, they just drive me crazy in Coco because I feel like I'm working in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. Um, we picked up the view based table view, um, very, very shortly after it was adopted. I think that was, um, like uh, OS 10.10 era. Um, mm. So that was a big boon to be able to get away from uh, cells for that kind of thing and kind of let, you know, especially for myself, I was just coming on board with Omni at that time. Um, and that was the development mode I was familiar with was all view-based layout. You know, I'd, I'd barely touched in a cell prior to that. So that um, definitely helped me on board more quickly. Uh, the thing that I think I saw in the AppKit release notes this time around was... Um, like automatic table view row height measurement, um, which has been around on iOS for a while and, you know, has been pretty nice to work with as long as you, you know, get your constraint system set up correctly. But that's been helpful for us for, you know, measuring text and word wrapping and that kind of thing. Um, so seeing that come to the Mac, again, is one of those incremental improvements that's going to make quality of life just a little bit better in the long run, I think. 
this year they finally deprecated NS drawer. So let's hope next year it's NSL. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Fingers crossed for that one. Every time I hear an Apple engineer talk about it, though, they're less optimistic about ever getting rid of it. The draw is, is warm in my heart. I love my draws. Yeah. I had somebody, I was talking to a, I can't remember who it was. I think, I think, oh, I was talking to a designer a week ago or so and, and they were working on a, on a design for an app that I'm working on and they kept calling a sidebar, sidebar, a drawer. And I I stopped and said, no, that's not a drawer. Yeah. Big difference there. Yeah. Well, anyway, we should probably get to the picks. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter DevChat in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Andrew, what do you have for us? Uh, I'm just going to do one pick. Well, one and a half picks, I guess, today. Um, I'm going to pick the new Star Trek TV show that came out last week. Um, I have watched the first three episodes, which are all that are out as of this recording, and I'm really enjoying it. It's a, it's a very different take on Star Trek. It's Star Trek for for TV as it is now. Uh, you know, It's like all serialized and very high budget, and it's only 13 episodes per season. And of course, just like with Apple, the best place to go to hear people um, saying how how much they hate Star Trek is a bunch of Star Trek fans. So a lot of Star Trek fans are saying how they hate it and it's terrible and everything. But they're they're just uh, getting used to it. Anyway, I'm really I'm really liking it. I also read the book that um, the first Star Trek Discovery book that came out, which gives kind of a bunch of backstory on the characters, and uh, enjoyed that too. So. It is a streaming only thing, and that's part of why people are complaining. But get a free trial and watch the first couple episodes. It's it's pretty good. That's my pick. Very cool, Erica. Do you have a pick for us? I do have a pick. It's sort of one of those picks that's a frustrating pick. My car is now seventeen years old, and I'm just getting to the point where it's like I think it may have a year or two more left in it. But I sort of have to start rethinking of what do I want out of a car. So I go online and I search around and I find the ideal car, the car that would be absolutely perfect as our next car. And it's the Honda Element and it was discontinued six years ago. (laughs) So between the time I purchased my car to the point where I'm ready to replace it. It was introduced in 2003, discontinued in 2011. It's like there is a used market for it, but the used elements, their mileages are insanely high, and the prices are 
at the level of a new car would have cost in 2010 or more. It is incredibly frustrating. So my pick is a car that I can't have and isn't new. And I'm just hoping that Honda will bring it back, but I don't think they will. It's like a pick and an anti-pick at the same time. That's it's new. more an that's anti-pick. New. That's, that's new for us. <laughs> the car's great. Can't afford it. Can't afford a used one. Uh, Guy, do you have picks for us? Yeah, so I'm going to pick a very cool article. It's how to train your own model for CarML. So as you know, Apple released this cool new technology, which makes it kind of easy to use machine learning on your apps, both on iOS and macOS. But actually training your own model is a tricky thing. And this article helped me. Uh, you can bring up an EC2 instance and train your own model converted for CoreML and you can make your own hot dog or not app or something and it's cool. It's a really cool article and the link's going to be in the show notes. That is actually really cool. <laughs> I can't wait to read that. Nice. Uh, Tim, do you have a do you have a pick for us? Sure. Um so this was uh this was actually really helpful to me as I was you know, prepping for the show today. Um, I'd like to pick a carbon copy cloner, the backup software. Um, I'm a, I'm a recent convert to the software itself. It, uh, it saved a, a laptop of mine just last week. Um, but the real reason that, uh, it came into my head as a pick today was the series of blog posts that they'd done in the lead up to the high Sierra release talking about APFS support, because um, as you might imagine, backup software has uh, a lot of reason to be concerned about file system transitions um, and how they're going to integrate with APFS and work cross-platform and that sort of thing. Um, and so reading that technical information was a great way to get my own head around what APFS might mean for an app that is also dealing with the file system to less of an extent than Carbon Copy Cloner, to be sure. But um, Still a little bit. Awesome. I am a longtime Carbon Copy Cloner user, and it is so worth paying the extra money and helping support them. Yeah, I agree with that. I've been using it for, I don't know, since the 10.3 or 10.4 days at least, and it's well worth it. Excellent. Well, we're about out of time. Tim, thanks for coming on the show. It's good to give the Mac lovers. Mac developers, a little bit of love. We talk a lot about iOS on here, but we get the give a little bit for the Mac people today. So that was great. And we'll yeah. see you all next week. Thank you so much for having me. That's Thanks, great. Tim. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.